We're a few weeks into a series on the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture is under attack again, as it has been ever since the Garden of Eden, since Satan first said to Eve, has God said? And just to review a couple of our points from weeks past, we talked first of all about revelation, revelation, and we said that God is a revelational God. He reveals himself to his creation. And we can learn much about him from nature, but the ultimate source of all that God wants us to know about him is the Bible. But God doesn't just want us to learn facts about him. He is a revelational God because he is a relational God. And he created Adam and Eve to know him. He didn't just put them in the garden and just watch from a distance, but he walked with them in the garden, showing from the earliest moments of mankind on this earth, God was reaching out to know Adam and Eve, even before the fall. And in Scripture, we see him constantly reaching out to lost sinners. You know Second Corinthians five eighteen and 19. God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so this re- reconciliation comes by means of the gospel, God's truth going forth, preached from his word. So, Revelation, next, inspiration. Inspiration. And we talked about Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or the scriptures were breathed out by God. We saw this quote from A.A. A. Hodge. The sacred writers were so influenced by the Holy Spirit that their writings are as a whole and in every part God's word to us. And we also talked last time about plenary inspiration. Plenary, which means that the whole Bible, the entire Bible, is inspired. Some will say that the Bible is only inspired when it touches on spiritual issues, but the Bible itself makes no such distinction between spiritual and non-spiritual portions. The spiritual aspect of the scriptures are intimately bound up in the historical aspect, aren't they? If Jesus Christ was not actually God or very God, if he did not die, if he was not raised from death to life, if those historical facts weren't true, what happens to the spiritual content of our faith? It goes away. So the, the, the spiritual teachings of God's word are grounded in the history of God's word as well. And so if God's word can't be trusted, if it's not wholly inspired, then how do we know which is inspired and which isn't? So we talked about plenary inspiration, that is the whole Bible. We also talked about verbal inspiration, that is the words themselves are inspired and not just the thoughts. And here again we quoted Charles Spurgeon, we contend for every word of the Bible and believe in the verbal, literal inspiration of Holy Scripture. Indeed, we believe that there can be no other kind of inspiration. If the words are taken from us, the exact meaning is of itself lost. So the, the meaning comes from the words, and God inspired the words. We don't just say that some vague spiritual truths are inspired in God's word, but the whole and every word is inspired by God. Let's move on from revelation and inspiration to truthfulness and inerrancy. Truthfulness and inerrancy. Let me just state a 
matter of simple logic. A statement is either true or it's false. If it's false, it may be because the one making the statement doesn't know it is false or does know it is false. If someone makes a false statement without knowing it's false, it's a mistake. It's something that's ignorant. But if somebody knowingly makes a false statement, it's a what? It's a lie. So either somebody making a false statement is uh, is ignorant or is a liar or some kind of deceiver. Now, our views of Scripture are rooted in the character of God. It's God's Word, isn't it? And God knows all things, so he can't say anything false out of ignorance. And God never lies, so he can't say anything false out of malice. So God can't say anything false, whether it be from ignorance or from malice, from a a lying intent. God himself is truth. Remember Exodus 34, verse 6, God revealed himself to Moses, and he described himself as the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. John, 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So God isn't just true in what he says, but he's true in his being. He's faithful in his being. We know him who is true. We are in him who is true. And in the Son, Jesus Christ. And then John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. In John 14 and John 16, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Holiness. And nothing that is holy can lie. So the Holy Spirit himself is and must be the Spirit of Truth. So Father, Son, Spirit, all the members of the Godhead are true, speak truth, and in fact are truth. So God himself is truth. God also speaks the truth. And there are many verses we could go to here, but just listen to Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So when you add up all the pieces of God's word, you get truth. And King James says in this verse, your word is true from the beginning. So God himself is truth, God speaks the truth, and also and to say it negatively, God cannot lie. Titus 1, verse 2, speaks of God who cannot lie. Or the ESV says, God who never lies. Literally, uh, it could be called the unlying God. God who does not lie. Hebrews six seventeen and 18 talks about the two unchangeable things. That is God's promise and God's oath. In which it is impossible for God to lie. God made promises to his son. He made promises to his people. And it is impossible for God to lie. Otherwise, what's the point of a promise? If I make a promise to my family, I may want to keep it. I may intend to keep it, but I might not be able to because I don't have the power to do so. Or I could, God forbid, deceive them into making a promise that that I can't fulfill. I don't want to fulfill it. I don't intend to fulfill it. But God cannot lie. He cannot be thwarted in whatever he promises that he will do. So God cannot lie. And in 2 Samuel 7, 28, 
after God has made his covenant with David, David says this, Now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So David was convinced that what God had promised him, he was going to do. So to continue our logic about God's truthfulness, God is always truthful. He never lies. He cannot lie. He never makes mistakes. He's never ignorant of anything. Therefore, God's words are true. And if Scripture is God's word, then Scripture must be always truthful. If this is indeed the word of God who doesn't lie, it must be in itself truthful. And more than just being true, Scripture is truth. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I could write a book that was completely true, so let's say a math book that was carefully edited and had all the answers right. But I could never claim to write a book that was the truth. I could write a book that was true, but not a book that was the truth. The truth. That is so critical for all of us. Wayne Grudem said this, The Bible is God's word, and God's word is the ultimate definition of what is true and what is not true. God's word is itself truth. Thus, we are to think of the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth, the reference point by which every other claim to truthfulness is to be measured. The idea of the truthfulness of Scripture was such a part of Paul's life, he just calls it the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So that's the truthfulness of God's word. It's always everywhere completely true. Another term we want to look at is inerrancy. Truthfulness and inerrancy is related to truthfulness. Truthfulness is a positive way of stating things. Inerrancy, that is without error, basically presents the same idea in a negative way. And here's the definition of inerrancy. Wayne Grudem again says, The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And another theologian, Paul Feinberg, says this, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the Bible, in its original manuscripts and properly interpreted, will be shown to be true and never false in all that it affirms, whether related to doctrine, ethics, or the social, physical, or life sciences. So in all that it addresses, that's going to be found to be true. Notice here he uses the term, all that it affirms, Because the Bible records lies, doesn't it? It records many lies, but it is truthful in the way it presents those lies as it explains those lies. The Bible doesn't lie when it records lies, but it speaks the truth about the lie. Now, for most of church history, until fairly recently, Christianity in all its forms held to the view of the truthfulness of Scripture. Just a few examples. Augustine said this, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And then Martin Luther, Everyone indeed knows that at times they, that is the fathers, have erred as men will. Therefore I am ready to trust them only when they prove their opinions from Scripture, which has never erred. And then John Wesley Nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. If we have one error, one mistake, one lie in this book, 
then how do we know what else can be trusted? Well, then, in more recent years, liberal theology came along and undermined this view in the last couple centuries or so. Charles Spurgeon stood against this liberal encroachment in his day, and men like B.B. Warfield and Gresham Machen did so later on. And this even led to denominational splits in the 1920s and 30s, and new denominations rejected liberal views of the Bible and reaffirmed the historical view of the Bible's truthfulness. And later on, after that time, a more subtle challenge called neo-orthodoxy came along. And while liberals denied the Bible was God's word, neo-orthodox theologians like Karl Barth would say more moderate things like the Bible contains the word of God, or it becomes the word of God when it somehow connects with your soul, or that the Bible is a good but fallible human witness to God's word. So in all these ways, it's not quite the, the level that men like Augustine, Luther, and Wesley had, but it, it contains God's word. So you have to dig in the Bible to find God's word to us. Or it's only God's word when it really touches your heart. Or again, it's a, a good but fallible witness to what God wants to say. And so by, say, the mid-70s, there was this neo-Orthodox view that liberal views of Scripture came along, and there was then a relative view of doctrine and morals that, that came, and the evangelical church needed to come against it. And so around this time, some evangelical leaders and scholars wanted to stand against this trend and form the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in 1977. Not all of you were alive back then. I think most of you were. I was just just barely. I was a, a young boy at the time. But this council produced a number of scholarly papers and books. And in 1978, they met in Chicago and released a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And at Signers, this isn't a complete list. This is just a, a copy of part of the list of, of some of the people who met and produced the statement. And at signers include many names you might recognize. You see Jay Adams up here. Um, you see Gleason Archer. He wrote a, a good book on uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Uh, men like D.A. Carson, Norman Geisler, Walt Kaiser, who's also written a lot about the difficulties in the Bible, Josh McDowell, John MacArthur, both junior and senior, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, and among them was my father down here, David Douglas. I lived in Chicago at the time, and he happened to work on this statement. And so I'm grateful for his legacy. So he's my favorite guy on this list. There's a lot of great men on this list. He's the best in my view. But this this was a a critical time in the evangelical church. Some of you who were alive back then, there there was lots of of things happening in the church, lots of growth in certain areas of the country. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. A lot of enthusiasm. Remember things like, I found it, and those are the, the way Bible. A lot of the evangelical culture was coming uh, throughout American culture itself. But there was a number of people who were pushing against the idea of the Bible as the, the, the inerrant word of God. Now, this term inerrancy is kind of awkward. Do you ever use the term inerrancy in your normal everyday life? Probably not, unless you're talking about the Bible. And it really says what the Bible is not. So wouldn't it be better just to say the Bible is true? like we said before? Well, historically speaking, there are those who would say the Bible is true, but not without error. They'd say it's true, maybe mostly true, nearly true, but they would say there might be a few mistakes in it. And so they hide behind the word true, 
to appear like, like they believe the historical doctrine of Scripture, but they qualify the views by saying, for example, that the Bible is true in relating to things like faith and practice, but may have errors of historical or scientific fact. And so you can have two people say the Bible is true, but they mean different things by it. You talk to a guy who says, do you believe the Bible? I'm sure I believe the Bible. Well, then you dig in, and you find out, well, they don't really believe maybe all the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They don't believe that in the resurrection, but they believe the Bible is true in a general sense. But if two people say that they have a belief that the Bible is inerrant, you're more likely to have a similar view of the doctrine of Scripture. But even then, that's no guarantee. It's like the doctrine of inspiration I talked about last week. Some people would say they believed in the inspiration of Scripture, but some meant by this that they believed that the general ideas were inspired. So evangelicals had to say that they believed in verbal inspiration, that is, the words of Scripture were inspired. But then some said that the, a lot of the words of Scripture were inspired, but not all of them. And so evangelicals had to talk about the term of uh, plenary or entire inspiration. So sometimes, unfortunately, you have to change terminology when certain words become ill-defined. So you have to keep tightening up your, your language and maybe getting new labels for things to express what you really think about a particular doctrine. So just to help us think through some of these issues, I just want to go through a few items in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. We won't go the whole thing. It's, it's fairly long. But statements like this or creeds or confessions, you might remember some of you who've been here a long time. I did a series on ancient heresies, and you see these confessions coming along from time to time that you see a heresy come up, and the, the church comes together and says, no, this is not what we believe. We believe something else. And it's very often a list of affirmations or denials. We believe this, or we don't believe this. And these creeds or confessions or statements are useful in that they give us guards that help us from straying theologically. And if you like to bowl, I... I, I at bowl sometimes I'm not good at it at all. But some some bowling alleys have these bumpers that come up for the kids. I like those myself, frankly. Just so the kids get a chance to knock some pins down, because otherwise they're always rolling the gutter. So when a child comes up, the bumpers come up and it keeps the, the ball sort of on the straight and narrow, roughly. Well, these confessions or these statements are kind of like that. They keep us on the straight and narrow. If if you're tending to stray, you can read them and say, Well, this particular church council says that this is the, the correct path through this doctrine. And so these statements are good to read and understand what they're saying, and so you can stay yourself on the straight and narrow. And confessions that are carefully constructed from Scripture help us examine our own beliefs and make sure that we are on that narrow path. So just a few excerpts. We won't, again, go through the whole thing, but listen to this. A holy scripture being God's own word written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit, that is inspiration, isn't it, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises." And then another section says this, being holy and verbally God-given, there's that plenary and verbal inspiration again, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So wherever it touches, whether it's history or 
or salvation or science, whatever it is, we can trust it as true. It's all inspired by God. Next, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. So if we say, well, most of it's inspired, then the next question is, which of it is not inspired? And then it's kind of a free-for-all, isn't it? Well, I'm just going to believe the parts that I like. I might believe the, the parts about loving your neighbor, but maybe there's some things, the Ten Commandments aren't so important to me, or I feel tempted, and so uh, maybe the things I, I really want to do that my my sinful desires might lead me to do, I'm just not, not going to call them sin anymore. I'm going to say that part of the Bible isn't inspired. We get a lot of that today, of course. A couple more sections here. It says, we affirm, and here's the, the affirmations and denials I mentioned before, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. Again, that's a plenary uh, inspiration view. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not of the whole. So we're not saying that parts are inspired, we're saying the whole thing is inspired. Another affirmation denial. We affirm that Scripture is enti- in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. So again, all the things the Bible talks about, it's inerrant and infallible in those ways. Now let me just... Sure. Sure. A lot of this was not necessarily one thing, but a number of things that had come up over decades, and they wanted to kind of address them all. Now, it's interesting that not all the people who signed the statement were young Earth creationists, and so they, they would they could be old Earth uh, believers, older like James Boyce. Is one. Um, I think Gleason Archer also. But some, some of these men believed in old earth, and so there could be some uh, some truth to parts of evolution anyway. But they would sort of hedge it with these sorts of statements. Now, others would say that's inconsistent with this, but that's a historical fact of some of these men and women as well. So, yeah, there were a number of things that, that sort of came together, and this was just the opportunity for many of them to say, no, this is what we believe as evangelicals. Let me say a few things just to clarify things. That inerrancy doesn't mean that the Bible always speaks in precise terms, just as we don't always speak in precise terms. Like uh, in Genesis 19.23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Some skeptics will say, well, we know that the earth uh, revolves and it, the earth goes around the sun and the sun doesn't really rise, does it? But we talk about sunrise and sunset. Nobody says that we're scientific illiterates. The Bible speaks in uh, these phenomenological ways as well, just as we do. The Bible also may use round or imprecise numbers. 
So 1 Kings 7.23 speaks of a great wash basin in the temple, which was ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. Now those of you who have done some geometry, you take ten cubits. I'm sorry, I should have warned you. There might be some math in your lesson today. But if you don't want to follow, that's okay. But if you're going to be so precise with your science, you say, well, if it's 10 cubits from brim to brim, and we all know that the circumference is pi times the diameter, so it really would be 31.41 whatever cubits around, wouldn't it? Not 30 cubits. The thing is that the, the measurements, they didn't have lasers and all sorts of really fine Rulers in those days, in fact, they might not even had a precise measure of a cubit. Whoever the guy happened to be who had the, the arm was the guy who, who was the cubit at the time. And so the Bible could use these round numbers and doesn't necessarily speak in scientific terms down to the tenth decimal point like we might want them to in some cases. But these are kind of easy things for skeptics to throw out there, throwing dust in your face if you're trying to explain that the Bible is God's word. Another thing is that the Bible may contain loose quotations and not transcriptions. So our modern emphasis on quoting exactly was not a concern of ancient times. But we do believe the Bible faithfully and accurately records the contents of what people said. So when you see some of these quotations of the Old Testament and the New, they're not always exact quotes. In fact, they're different languages. And so sometimes you just get the gist of what was said. Maybe the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' sermon may have been much longer than that, but we get excerpts of that. In fact, there are some times when Jesus may have, may have this, uh, this occasion when he's speaking, and it looks like one sermon to us, but maybe he spoke for a few minutes here, and then he, he had some food, and then he said some more things, and those became, it was a compilation of that sermon, not necessarily a transcript, like we might go and say, uh, John MacArthur's uh, Grace 2 website has transcripts of all the sermons. That's not necessarily how they did things in Jesus' day. That's an exact transcript of the entire thing Jesus might have said. Sometimes we've seen also that there might be some things out of order in the Bible. So some events in Jesus' life may be presented in one order in the Gospel of Matthew, different in Mark, different in Luke, different in John. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. They just have different uh, purposes than we might in a normal biography. We want things in maybe chronological order, but that's not how they always wrote things back in their day. Now, let's... Look at another thing here. It's that the, uh, the inerrancy note extends only to the original manuscripts. We saw that before, whatever was written by those who wrote the Bible. So again, from the Chicago Statement, it says, We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, that is, the original writings of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. So, though we don't have the originals, we have many thousands of manuscripts that contain the Scriptures, and by carefully comparing them, the scholars have been able to get very close to the original content with only a, a few very difficult spots. Now, there are some critics who will say, since we don't have actual photocopies of what Paul wrote or whoever wrote, then the whole thing is up for grabs, and they, they can 
make any number of assertions that the Bible must be riddled with errors. But when you compare uh, Scripture with Scripture across the ages, across these manuscripts, we see that the, the contents are very much the same. It was interesting, even back in the, the 40s when they discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they thought, well, we don't have any manuscripts of, at, at that point, there were no manuscripts existing of the Hebrew texts that were about after uh, the, the 1000s 1100s, something like that. So they're all fairly recent. They find these Dead Sea Scrolls that are a, twice as old as those uh, even before the time of Christ. And they looked and they compared that the, the, the manuscripts from 10 centuries later were much like those from even before the time of Jesus. And so we see the more we discover these manuscripts, the more confident we get that the transmission has been uh, very good, not the less confident we get. Now, some believe that there are other inerrant versions of Scripture, most notably the King James Version only, inerrantists. And they believe that the King James Version is the inerrant word of God for today, just as surely as the originals were. But this is an, a false doctrine, and this, this statement would, would speak against that sort of idea. We can say that with good confidence that the English versions we have represent very well what was in the originals, but we won't say that this is the inspired word of God itself, whatever translation we have in English today. Another clarification is to speak of infallibility versus inerrancy. Infallibility versus inerrancy. There are some who say that the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. What they mean is that the Bible accomplishes what it is meant to do, but it's not meant to be error-free. It's infallible in things regarding faith and practice, but it may have historical or scientific inaccuracies. And we talked about this before a bit. But again, many doctrines of Scripture are based on historical fact, like the fall, the historicity of Adam, the calling of Abraham, the giving of the law at Sinai, the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, the historical and theological are intertwined. And if you remove the historical foundation, you remove the... the, the the, the, the building will collapse. The, the doctrinal building will collapse. Maybe not right away, but inevitably. Uh, and there's no indication, as I said before, in the New Testament that Paul or Jesus or anyone else saw two classes of Scripture, the reliable spiritual, spiritual part and the unreliable historical part. So if you say, well, men are just evolved from some kind of ape, some common ancestor... But there was no man called Adam who spoke with God. Well, then, much of Scripture is undermined by that. Especially things like Paul, when he says that we all sinned in Adam, we all fell in Adam. If, if there's no Adam, then Paul's argument is ridiculous. If, if Abraham wasn't called and wasn't given that promise, then what, what is all this hope of the Messiah for? If Moses... And, and the Exodus uh, story didn't really happen. Then what about the law at Sinai, the, the, the Ten Commandments? And so many things are, are bound up in the historicity of the Old and the New Testaments. Now, I have said in the past that this issue, this, this inerrancy conference they had 45 years ago, You'd like to think that they could just walk away, brush their hands off, and say, okay, we're done for all time. 
but the stuff comes up again and again and again. And so, even in our own day, we have those who are pushing against this idea of inerrancy. And so, we want to ask, well, why bother with this? Well, because it's happening now, and, and maybe not so much for us older folks, but our kids are going to have this pressure as well in, in days to come to resist, to reject this idea of the inerrancy, the truthfulness of all of Scripture. Now, some will say, oh, it's just, this is theological, this is too technical, this is too much out there, I don't really care, I just want to love Jesus. Some people will say that. You want to talk about doctrinal subjects, and they just say, oh, I just want to love Jesus. Is that just enough? Well, it's great to love Jesus, it's great to be saved by Jesus, but what happens to, to the church, what happens to your faith, uh, could be affected by the way that you view Scripture. How many of you know about Francis Schaeffer? Some of you, a lot of you may have read his stuff in the past. Been dead for many years now, but he wrote a book, many good books, but one was called The Great Evangelical Disaster. He published this in 1984, so almost 40 years ago. Then he makes an important point. <clears throat> and he, he lived in Switzerland. If you know much about him, you know that. And he describes a ridge high in the Swiss Alps with a valley on both sides. And snow lies on the top of that ridge. And some of the melting snow flows into one valley and some into the other. One valley's flow leads to the Rhine River through Germany into the North Sea. The other valley's flow leads down to the Rhone River through France, then to the Mediterranean Sea. And Schaefer says this, The snow lies along that watershed unbroken as a seeming unity. So you have the snow right side by side. But when it melts, where it ends in its destinations is literally a thousand miles apart. That is a watershed. That is what a watershed is. A watershed divides. A clear line can be drawn between what seems at first to be the same or at least very close, but in reality ends in a very different situations. In a watershed, there is a line. Here's some more quotes from him. Sorry for the extensive quotes, but I think it's worthwhile for us to think about why this is important. Evangelicals today are facing a watershed concerning the nature of biblical inspiration and authority. It is a watershed issue in very much the same sense as described in the illustration. Within evangelicalism, there are a growing number of who are modifying their views on the inerrancy of the Bible, so the full authority of Scripture is completely undercut. But it is happening in very subtle ways. Like the snow lying side by side on the ridge, new views on biblical authority often seem at first glance not to be very so, so very far from, the, from what evangelicals until just recently have always believed. But also, like snow lying side by side on the ridge, the new view, views, when followed consistently, end up a thousand miles apart. What may seem like a minor difference at first, in the end, makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference, as we might expect, in things pertaining to theology, doctrine, and spiritual matters, but it also makes all the difference in things pertaining to the daily Christian life and how we as Christians are, are to relate to the world around us. In other words, compromising the full authority of Scripture eventually affects what it means to be a Christian theologically and how we live in the full spectrum of human life. So maybe those who go astray slightly from historical teaching on Scripture don't get too far afield, but too often their theological children and grandchildren end up very far away as far as the North Sea is from the Mediterranean. Some of you may have been in denominations that once were very strong on, on all the doctrines of Scripture, but then as that confidence in the Scripture eroded, maybe not right away, but over time, 
children, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren are so far away from that doctrine of belief, they're not in church anymore. They don't, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the deity of Christ and all these things. Uh, take some time, just as it takes time for the water to go from the top of a, a peak in Switzerland and get down to the North Sea or the Mediterranean. But we need to hold fast to the truths of Scripture so that we don't have this separation happening. And so every generation of believers needs to stand firm against challenges to the faith which come along. And today we have the additional challenge of dealing with postmodern thinking, not just outside the church, but inside the church as well. And at the heart of postmodernism is a suspicion or denial of any claims to absolute truth. So if you say to somebody, this is God's truth, you must believe it, people will resist that. How, who are you to tell me what the truth is? I will make my own truth. But if you believe that, that strikes at the heart of what the scriptures claim to be, in their entirety, the revealed truth of God. And so we can look to men like Francis Schaeffer and Gresson Machen, B.B. Warfield, Charles Spurgeon, and years past, to help us with our own challenges today. And if we give up this fight for the truth, we will ultimately suffer the spiritual devastation of so many churches that have compromised their beliefs in Scripture. But we must confess also, even as we affirm and contend for the truth, there are difficulties in the Bible, alleged errors and discrepancy. And so what do we do about these alleged errors? You may have people you talk to say, I I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, and they'll throw out something uh, about the Bible being wrong. You may have been confronted before with problem passages by an unbelieving friend or family member. Or maybe yourself, as you read your, your Bible, you struggle with certain scriptures. Let me just say, When this happens, don't panic. It's very unlikely that this Bible difficulty has never been noticed before. That the the, the guy, the atheist you happen to meet on the bus is the one guy who who can just pull the entire edifice of Christianity down with his incisive, keen wisdom. Don't worry that the single issue will destroy the entire body of Christian doctrine. Many evangelical scholars have labored over these passages, and very likely there's a good explanation. And feel free to ask Tom or Brett or me about a particular difficult passage, especially Tom or Brett. You can ask them all your hard questions. Ask me the easy questions. Uh, but there are good commentaries. Any good commentary is going to deal with the difficult passages. And there are many books I mentioned before. Gleason Archer has an encyclopedia of Bible difficulties about that big. It goes through many, many passages, not even all of them, but talks about ways that we can understand these that might seem to, at, at first to be very unexplainable from an inerrative view. Um, you can even do a very careful, very careful internet search for uh, answers to some of these questions. But don't believe everything you read on the internet. Okay, You should know that by now. Uh, next time, in fact, I'm going to go through a number of these alleged errors, and I'd like your participation. If you have run across something you want me to address, uh, you talk to me afterwards, or email me, and I'll try to get to them. I have a few already, but if there are some that have maybe bothered you for a while and you can't find out the answer, ask me. I can't promise a good answer. I can promise to look for a good answer. But it might be worthwhile to go through a few just to see how uh, theologians, historians can approach these alleged errors, these alleged contradictions in the Bible. Any questions before we wrap things up? today. Let's just say a few things as we conclude. 
First of all, we must be diligent to hold to the truthfulness of God's word. The issue of inerrancy is not just a, a theological issue that's only important for scholars, but it's a crucial one for all of us. Evangelical denominations and seminaries have quickly fallen to liberal views in many areas because they've compromised on their view of Scripture. And if I deny inerrancy, I'm undermining the confidence in Scripture. How do I know what's true and what's false? If I believe the Bible is not inerrant, I can just pick and choose. Like the Choose Your Adventure series, you guys remember those books, maybe in your kids? Make your own path through a particular story. Well, you can sort of choose your own Bible. If the Bible is maybe God's word, well, why don't I just find the parts I like and reject the parts I don't like? Denial of inerrancy also undermines confidence in God. If we can't trust God's word, how can we trust God? If God lies in the pages of Scripture, then he may well have lied when he makes promises to us. If we take God's promises in Scripture and we hold on to them, we pray over them, we we hold on tight in times of difficulty, if God is a liar, then what's the point? We've lost our anchor. If God is can lie or is mistaken, he is either evil or arrogant, or ignorant, rather, but... If he, if he, let me say that again. If he can lie or is mistaken, he is evil or ignorant. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is good and all-knowing, so he cannot lie and he cannot make a false statement. So we must, first of all, be diligent to hold to the truthfulness of God's word. Second, we must be diligent to understand God's word. We must be diligent to understand God's word. If the Bible is God's true and errant word, we must be diligent to understand it correctly. Inerrancy doesn't help us very much if we misunderstand the Bible. We don't want to have errant views, that is, error-filled views of an inerrant scripture. If God's word is, is without error, but my understanding is riddled with errors, it doesn't really help me very much in my Christian walk. So we want to understand God's word as error-free as we can to try to faithfully understand God's word. And then finally, we must be diligent to obey God's word. We must be diligent to obey God's word. And Francis Schaeffer says this, I have said that inerrancy is the watershed of the evangelical world, but it is not just the theological debating point. It is the obeying of the scripture which is the watershed. It is believing and applying it to our lives which demonstrate whether we in fact believe it. You can say all you want about inerrancy. You can agree 100% with the statements. You can affirm it online, and yet if you're not living it, if you're not applying it, then it's useless to you. In fact, it's going to judge you, as James says. Don't be just hearers, but doers. So parents, are you holding up the Bible as God's true word to your children? Do they see you treating the Bible as God's truth? Do they see you submitting to God's truth? Do you contradict the truth of God with your lives? Or, you could ask yourself, do you elevate your own preferences to the same level of God's eternal word? All of us, whether we're parents, whether we're uh, grandparents, whether we're children, how is this doctrine of the inerrancy of God going to affect the way we live and obey God's word? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without your word. You have given us your word And yet, it takes diligent effort to understand it. It takes diligent effort to 
believe it. It takes diligent effort to obey it. That we pray in all these ways that we would base our lives, our faith, our teaching, all that we do on your own true, infallible, eternal word, the very words of God. May we believe it, may we live it out, may we obey it, that Christ will be proclaimed and seen in us. We pray in his name. Amen.